This is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. Hi, my name is Dr. Lou Diaz, pastor of Butte Bible Fellowship located at 2255 Pillsbury Road in Chico. And I'm providing inspirational teaching for you from God's Word each week. Listen to my weekly radio program, Encouraging Words with Dr. Lou Diaz, at 10 a.m. on Saturday or 10 a.m. on Sunday. If you would like to hear my current message series, you may call Butte Bible Fellowship at 530-892-0521. Now to the message from Acts chapter 19. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 19. And let's read the first seven verses to begin to get a flavor for this chapter. Again, this series is entitled, The Church in Action, A Journey Through Acts. Here, Acts chapter 19. When Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about 12 men in all. Today's message is entitled, What Does Revival Look Like? Well, first of all, revival is not a scheduled meeting. You can't have, as I grew up with, revival meetings and consider that revival. Secondly, revival is not when there's an increase in church attendance. For example, after 9-11, the tragedy of the United States being attacked by terrorists caused an increase in church attendance. But it was temporary. It was not revival. What does revival look like? What even is revival? I like the definition Billy Graham gives. Billy Graham gives this definition. He says revival is the beginning of a new obedience unto God. It's when we recognize the lordship of Christ, we call sin, sin, and holiness, holiness. It's a new beginning of obedience to God. The word revive means to live again. And in our Bible study this past Thursday, we were studying Ezekiel. And in Ezekiel chapter 37, Ezekiel sees a valley of dry bones. They are bleached and completely dry, dusty, falling apart in the desert, decomposing even there. And the Lord asked the question, can these dry bones live again? And Ezekiel wisely answered, Lord, only you know the answer to that. And so the Lord had Ezekiel prophesy to the bones, and the bones knit together. Them bones, them bones, them dry bones, they came together. And then he had Ezekiel prophesied to the wind, representing the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit filled this army of reassembled soldiers, and they stood strong and stood tall, ready for battle. Now that's a picture of the restoration of Israel, but it's also a great picture of what revival looks like. You see, the church at large today 
is dusty and bone dry. She has left her first love. She's lukewarm and self-sufficient. The church is in the pits, in the deep, dark valley of useless pride and carnal self-effort apart from the living and powerful Spirit of God. We need revival. Amen? So now, let's look at what revival looks like. There are five things that revival looks like, and we're going to see all of these in Acts chapter 19. Number one, revival looks like this. The Holy Spirit comes upon us. Number two, the Word of God spreads. Number three, the name of Jesus is honored. Number four, conviction of sin brings radical changes to people's lives. And number five, the disobedient will still cling to their idols in spite of the move of the Spirit of God. Well, let's look at each of these points from Acts chapter 19. First of all, the Holy Spirit comes upon us. In Acts chapter 19, verses 1 to 7, we read that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus, and there he found some disciples, and there was something about these disciples that was off. He sensed that there was something lacking about their faith. So he asked them two diagnostic questions. The first one was, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And the second one was, um, what baptism did you receive? Now to the first question, uh, when you believed, did you receive the Holy Spirit? The question was, no, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And the baptism they came under was John's baptism. Now you need to know that John the Baptist was uh, ministering as it's recorded in Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. And while he was in the wilderness with a uh, camel hair jacket eating locusts, he was preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is near. He was the one prophesied by the prophet Isaiah as preparing the way for the coming of the Lord, Jesus. And as he preached and baptized, people would come in droves from all over Jerusalem and Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, and they were confessing their sins, and he was urging them, especially when he saw the spiritual leaders, he said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. There's an axe at the root, and it's ready to chop down the tree of your life if you do not produce good fruit. And he said, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me comes one who, will, who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not even worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So both Apollos, who was educated and eloquent but empty, and these 12 men only knew the baptism of John. They weren't clear on the gospel. John's role was to point to Jesus, but they thought it was about confession and repentance. They didn't know it was about a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And perhaps you have been all about religion, but not a relationship. Perhaps you have been all about uh, the focus on ritual, but not on personal experience. You have a lot of head knowledge, but not heart experience. 
when I was a pastor at the Wheaton Evangelical Free Church in Wheaton, Illinois, there was a revival happening at Wheaton College. And a pastor's daughter, who was a student at Wheaton College, went forward to trust in Christ. And you say to yourself, but wait a second, isn't she a pastor's kid, a PK? Shouldn't she know about Jesus? Well, God showed her in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit there at Wheaton College that she had a ritualistic faith, not a relational faith. And that's when she trusted in Jesus Christ fully for the first time in a relationship, not in a works kind of orientation, not in a sense of trying to jump through spiritual hoops and do spiritual dynamics to get the approval of God. She trusted in Jesus Christ and his finished work on the cross alone, and she was gloriously saved even though she thought she was a Christian prior to that time. We need the Holy Spirit to come upon us. We need the Holy Spirit to fill us. We need the Holy Spirit to empower us, and we have been living in the energy of the flesh. We have been living in the fumes of our own personality. We have been devising our own strategies for success and leaving God out as a church overall. And it's time now for us to rely upon the Lord, to call upon the Lord, and to surrender to the Lord and ask him to fill us. Now, you do receive the Holy Spirit the moment you trust in Christ. The Bible is clear about that. Even when Peter was preaching to Cornelius and his household, Gentiles, he said, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all who heard the message. They heard, they believed, they trusted in Christ for forgiveness, and the Holy Spirit came into their lives. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives the moment we believe. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. It says in Ephesians 1.13, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. Now, though you receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of trusting in Christ, the question is, are you allowing the Holy Spirit to control and empower you? Does he have a monopoly on your life? Are you totally surrendered to him? That's the question. We will experience a new and a fresh surrender to God. We will experience the power of God, the wind of God blowing through the sails of the church when we surrender to him. In the book of Revelation, the seven letters to the seven churches speak about this. And we read that the church at Ephesus, which, by the way, this was the beginning of the church of Ephesus, mentioned in Acts 19, was doing a lot of good things, but they left their first love. Jesus said to the church, return to your first love. Repent and begin doing the things out of love that you did in the beginning when you trusted in me. You remember when you trusted in Christ? You remember the excitement, the love, the freshness you had? Return to that. Revival is returning to our first love for Jesus. In the book of uh, Revelation chapter 3, the Laodicean church, which many dis believe describes our period in history today, was lukewarm. It was neither cold nor hot, neither rebelling or all out for Jesus. It was lukewarm. And why did Jesus say, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm? It's because 
There's nothing more heretical than misrepresenting the Lord. That's blasphemy. When you say you're a Christian, but you don't even resemble Christ. And so Jesus said, you think you have it all. You need to examine yourself, your poor spiritual condition, and repent of your pride, repent of your self-sufficiency, and open the door of the church and let me back in. Because if you'll let me in, then you will have true relationship with me, which is what it's all about. And we will have close fellowship, and you will be all that you were meant to be. So we need revival. And revival is being filled with the Holy Spirit. Are you desperate enough? Are you acknowledging your desperate condition? Are you realizing you're living by the energy of your own strength? And you can't do that. You can't live the Christian life apart from abiding in Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's important. So had Paul allowed these 12 men to continue the way they are, that church that they established in Ephesus would have been a dry and sick and sad church. It would have been the, the chosen frozen, if you will. But thank the Lord, Paul saw a problem and he addressed it and he preached Jesus as the focus. They trusted in the Lord, were baptized in the Lord, came coming under his influence, under his authority, and they were full of the Holy Spirit. That church in Ephesus was one of the strongest churches in the New Testament. It received no less than four letters, the book of Ephesians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, because Timothy was their pastor, and the book of Revelation, chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Praise God for that strong church in Ephesus because it had a strong foundation, Paul leading these people to faith and focus on Christ. The second thing that happens in revival is this, that the word of God spreads. In Acts chapter 19, verses 8 and 10, it says, Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. Now you need to know that Paul always made it his practice to go straight into the synagogue. He wanted to preach to his fellow countrymen, his fellow Jews, and share with them about the Messiah has come, that they might trust in him and be completed in Christ and be Messianic Jews. But they became obstinate. They became hard-hearted, and they refused to believe, and they actually maligned. They tried to undermine and criticize and uh, deter people from tr following the way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and followers of his were called uh, followers of the way. Well, now, it says in the next set of verses here, uh, again, Acts 19, 8 to 10, so Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So not only did Paul have a record length of time in a synagogue, three months, but he took the disciples, those who were followers of his, and rented out a lecture hall of a philosopher named uh, Tyrannus. And during the hours when that lecture hall wasn't used, he used it as a seminary and he trained up these believers to share the word of God and they went and spread the word 
left and right. And people came to Christ. And that's what happens during a time of revival. So when the revival happened at Wheaton College, while I was at the Wheaton Free Church, uh, they said, we're not calling this revival yet. We're calling this a, a, a renewal. But the test of a revival is there's going to be a thrust of missions. There'll be an outreach around the world if this is a genuine revival, because the word will spread. The third thing we see about revival is that the name of Jesus is honored. In Acts chapter 19, verses 11 to 17, it says, God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses cured, and the evil spirits left them. That's amazing. It continues to say, some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Now, it was not uncommon in Ephesus, especially where there was the uh, emphasis on the occult, for there to be traveling uh, Jewish priests and their families to try to exercise people of demons. When I went to Nepal, I actually saw a witch doctor trying to get a demon out of a little boy. And he was going like this. And I said to my interpreter, what is he doing? And he said, he's saying, the demon wants a gift. Give him a gift and he'll come out. But he'll only come out temporarily. We are finding in Nepal, this pastor told me, that in the name of Jesus, demons come out and they don't come back. But these demons will appease in order to get something of a gift, and then they'll come back and harass uh, that little boy. It's the name of Jesus that is powerful. Well, these uh, um, people, the seven sons of Sceva, noticed uh, that Paul was exercising demons from people, and so they decided to copy him. They were copycats. And so uh, uh, Sceva and Sons had a business, the Demon Busters. Who are you going to call the Demon Busters? And so they were doing this. And one day an evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know and Paul I know, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. I want you to notice something about this passage. This passage speaks about the name of Jesus three times. And it says that Paul baptized these 12 men in the name of Jesus. That is, in, under the authority and in the influence of Jesus. And it says that these people were healed, that people were healed in the name of Jesus. And it says in Jesus' name, people were set free from spiritual bondage. Jesus, 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 there's something about that name. Jesus' name is the name above all names. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But you have to know the Lord to be able to say Jesus is Lord. And these people didn't know the Lord. They were using his name as if it were an incantation, as if it was a charm. And if uh, the name Jesus didn't work out, they, they tried to use the word Paul. And the demon says, I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but you're no Jesus, and you're no Paul, 
and this demon beat him up. But the point of the story is that in revival, God is going to work in such a miraculous and powerful way that the name of Jesus is going to be revered, it's going to be honored, it's going to be on everybody's lips, it's going to be high and lifted up. We look forward to and pray for revival where the name of Jesus is honored. The fourth thing that happens in revival is conviction of sin brings changes. In Acts 19, verses 18 to 20, we read this. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Now, in this revival I was telling you about at Wheaton College, and this was in, I believe, 1995, uh, the Spirit of God was so powerful in moving on the Christians there at Wheaton College that they gathered in the Edmund uh, Hall uh, and they just worshipped the Lord and they went up on stage and confessed their sins and they would bring the contraband, whatever it was that was the cause of the sin, whether it was a, a bottle of alcohol or one person brought a computer because he had been struggling with pornography, they were confessing their sins before the entire group. They were so convicted of their sins and wanting to be done with them, to take away the, the continuation of using these idols, these vices that were keeping them from connection and closeness with God. And the moment they, they confessed and repented and they walked off the stage, a small group would welcome them and said, you're in our small group now. And they continued in accountability and in love and in prayer so that they might continue to live a holy life unto the Lord. That was happening in Wheaton College in 1995 when the Holy Spirit of God was moving among several college campuses. Well, this is exactly what happened when the gospel came to Ephesus. And what's very significant and special for me and Shirley is that we were on a tour and we went to Turkey and we went to the city of Ephesus. And I never felt more close to the Bible. Even though I've been to Israel, you're walking 30 feet above where Jesus actually walked because of the buildup over time. But in Ephesus, you were actually walking on the street that Paul would walk on. And at the end of this long street is this huge library. Now it's all a ruin. It's just the outlying structure of the library. But imagine that library being filled with scrolls on the occult, on sorcery, on incantations, on casting spells. That was what Ephesus was known for, the occult. And anything having to do with occult practices, you can find it and buy it in Ephesus. Well, these people who came to Christ were repenting of their Satan worship. They were repenting of their um, following evil things and they burned it. Now, the value of what they burned, oh, it could have been uh, millions of dollars worth. And actually, because of the keeping of these secrets that they were holding in the evil realm, the pr this was a priceless uh, value that they were burning. Why? Because you can't put a price on Jesus. Jesus is worth it all. As George Beverly said, uh, George Beverly Shea in his song said, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. Jesus is the pearl of great price. You want to get rid of everything and take a hold of Jesus. So you can see 
lives were radically changed. There was confession and there was repentance and there was destruction of any evil influence. Today in Haiti, where uh, voodoo is practiced, when a person receives Christ, they'll pull out anything that has to do with voodoo and destroy it as a symbol of them turning to Christ. Who knows if maybe there's something of evil influence in your home, a Ouija board or, or something, tarot cards or something of uh, evil influence. Get rid of it now. Have no evil influence in your life. Cling to Christ and Christ alone. So with revival, we see the Spirit of God coming on people. We see the Word of God spreading. We see the name of Jesus being honored. And we see radical conversions where people are burning and, and turning fully away from their old life and turning fully to Christ. But even in spite of all that, the last thing is that we see that the disobedient still cling to idols. Now, in this case, I use the word the disobedient. I could have said the unsaved still cling to idols. But you know, even in revival, when the Spirit of God is working, some Christians will remain disobedient. Some Christians will stubbornly choose their idols over Christ. And we must all be obedient to the faith. We must all trust in Jesus as Lord and have no other God before us. So here in Acts 19, verses 26 to 29. Demetrius, who was the head of the silvers, silversmith's guild, uh, said, uh, you see and hear how this fellow Paul is convinced and led, led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. He says that gods made by human hands are no gods at all. Well, that's good that Demetrius, uh, number one, was listening to Paul's message that an idol is not God. An idol is a stick of wood or a piece of metal or carved rock, and it's lifeless. Anything that comes from an idol is a counterfeit of God that is inspired by demons. But an idol is not God. There's only one true God, and Paul was talking about Jesus. The second thing that Demetrius uh, recognized is that the effect of the gospel spreading was impacting the whole province of Asia, praise God. And with regards to that, when revival comes, it dries up the customers uh, that um, organizations and industries that rely on human vices depend upon. In other words, um, substance abuse, uh, bars and... and um, drug dealers and uh, um, casinos and uh, the pornography industry and prostitution will dry up when people come to Christ. During the Welsh revival, it's reported that scores of taverns went out of business for lack of customers. Praise God. Well, that touches the pocketbook. And even though Demetrius is saying, hey, we've got to protect the great honor of our goddess, Diana or Artemis, uh, that we are the custodians of, the temple guards of, um, here in Ephesus, uh, his real motive was, hey, they're killing our cash cow. They're hitting our pocketbook. We got to do something or business is going to go in the tubes. So uh, the silversmiths would make these small uh, replicas of Diana, um, and uh, they said she fell out of the sky. And there may have been a meteorite that fell out of the sky and they carved it. 
and they made it to look like a woman with several breasts, um, symbolizing fertility. And uh, I remember when I went to Paris and I went up the Eiffel Tower. And when I came down, I saw everybody buying these miniature Eiffel Towers. You could buy the real small one, the medium-sized one, or the bigger one, and bring it home to remember that you went to uh, the Eiffel Tower. Well, everyone went to Ephesus. It was uh, the Temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the, of the ancient world. So they all went there, and they all wanted to buy a little uh, idol of Diana to take home. And uh, that's why Demetrius was standing against this. Now, that's what's going to happen in time of revival. People are still going to cling to their idols. And it says, uh, when they heard what Demetrius had to say, the silversmiths were furious and the, and the crowd was furious. There were 25,000 that gathered in the amphitheater, the outdoor amphitheater in Ephesus, and they cried out for two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. They were clinging to their idols. The whole city was in an uproar. Now you need to know that I went down the main road of Ephesus, I saw the library where all those scrolls were, and then I went to the side and I went to the amphitheater. And it's a huge amphitheater with all this outdoor seating, and there was a stage up front, and Shirley took a picture of me preaching. Uh, and uh, I was there, so I can relive this even as I tell you about it. 25,000 people screaming about their idol, trying to drown out Alexander the Jew, who is trying to make a case for why uh, uh, Jews should not be associated and mixed up with these Christians. Well, what does revival look like? The Holy Spirit comes upon us. The Word of God spreads. The name of Jesus is honored. Conviction of sin brings radical change. And the disobedience still cling to idols. We need revival today. Do you need encouragement? I want to share my spiritual gift of encouragement with you. If you would like to hear my current message series, you may call Butte Bible Fellowship at 530-892-0521. Call Butte Bible Fellowship at 530-892-0521 to find out how you can connect with our weekly worship services and faith-building messages from God's Word.